0: I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. Last week we looked at the uh, narrative of the rich young ruler, and we're going to continue in that this week. Last week we saw that our Lord Jesus Christ and His love and mercy showed this rich young religious, good, moral person that there was a cost to follow Jesus Christ. So to break his own perception of his moral goodness, Christ directs this young man to the law, particularly to the moral law of God contained in the Ten Commandments. To understand this in a little bit more detail, we're going to look at the second half of this. We're going to look at, you know, last week we saw the cost to follow Christ. This week we're going to see the consequence of rejecting Christ. And so to understand this in a little bit more detail, I thought it important to go back and review, let's review the Ten Commandments just real quickly so that we have a good understanding of the text that we're going to look with. So turn with me in your Bibles first to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20. I've come to find out that a lot of Christians don't know what the Ten Commandments are, and I've also come to find out that they don't know which are the Ten Commandments. So, we're going to clear up, clear up any misconception this morning. The Ten Commandments, right? You probably know it by the Cecil B. DeMille movie with Charlton Heston, right? Unfortunately, that's where people get some of their theology, but whatever. Whatever. Let's just do them in a a snapshot. Let's look at them in a snapshot. What's the first commandment? Well, the first commandment is found in Exodus 20, verse uh, 3. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. The second commandment. You shall not make any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. The third commandment: You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, found in Exodus 27. The fourth commandment: Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. The fifth commandment: Honor your father and your mother, Exodus 20:12. The sixth commandment: You shall not murder, Exodus 20:13. The 7th commandment, you shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20.14. The 8th commandment, you shall not steal, Exodus 20.15. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, Exodus 20.16. And the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, found in Exodus 20.17. I would suggest that as you go through in your reading, you underline these and you mark them and Wouldn't hurt if you pulled them out and kind of memorized them. But there is something significant to know about. In the first four verses, in the first four commandments, I'm sorry, they really deal with man's relationship to God, man's worship of God, how to worship God. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail. The fifth commandments through the tenth really deal with man's relationship or or people's relationship to each other. Reflecting, it should be reflecting their relationship with God. right? So I want you to put that out there. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to go through the first four commandments, if you would, and just explain them in a little bit uh, more detail. Beginning with the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. And this is significant, because this is the very first one. And it establishes, and this is what it does, it establishes the preeminence of God in a person's life. In the heart of a person should be the preeminence of God. God is to be preeminent in all things. He is to be first. First in thought, first in affection, first in our hearts. And I call your attention to one of the words in particular, where he says, before. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And it means upon or above or against. So it doesn't mean sequentially. It means above or beyond or against. So what are we talking about? There is to be no God, no other affection over God. I'm going to show you, as we go back to Mark chapter 10, I'm going to show you that this is where the rich young ruler fails. He fails right there. And I'm going to share something else with you. This is where all people fail. All people fail at this first commandment. Simply put, there is to be nothing that we love more than we love God. Everything else should pale in comparison. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, what is known as the Shema, Moses tells Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. That is the singular most critical commandment that Jesus references. That we are to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul. Why is it in the church today that there's so much indifference? Why is it that we have a hard time with committing to the things of God? What are the other things that that cloud and, and put scales upon our eyes that we don't see the glory of God. We don't yearn for God. We don't see the beauty of God. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked by a scribe what was the greatest commandment, and Jesus quoted Moses right here. In Matthew 22, 37, uh, 37 and 38, He said, You shall love the Lord your God, and He quotes the Shema. Now listen, I'm going to put it out there. Let us measure ourselves by that very first commandment. What do we love more than God? Christ died to restore us to a right relationship with the living God. That's what he did to bring peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So as we embark upon the moral law of God, as I shared with you the first four verses, deal with the worship of God, our proper heart toward God. We come out of the gate seeing that there's nothing more important, nothing more critical than for us to love God with a pure and unadulterated heart. The second commandment, you shall not make any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven, Above or on earth, beneath or in the water, under the earth. This is an area where some confusion comes in and where there is great concern. This commandment deals with the form of worship of the one true living God. That's what it deals with. We're to love the God and now we're to have a form of worship to that God. And the Lord is clear with this. We are not to make any likeness image of what the living God looks like nor worship that image. You remember when we first started the church years ago, and there was a person who was attending the church, and we had moved into another building, a church building, and during a, a casual conversation, this person said, well, Mark, why don't we just like, put pictures of Jesus up on the wall, and you know that great picture of Jesus where he's knocking on the door, and they say, there's Jesus knocking on the door of the heart. I think we could spruce this place up if we add some pictures of Jesus. What do you think? And I said, we're not idolaters. So we're not going to put up any pictures of Jesus. Because that is an artist's rendition of Jesus. And we're not to make according to the second commandment any likeness of what God looks like. Nor are we to substitute... Any likeness for God in the form of an animal, in the form of a tree, in the form of anything else created. God is that living, endurable, holy, pure spirit. And by faith, we worship Him. Many people say at times, well, I don't really actually worship it. I use that statue or that object or whatever to help me meditate and get closer to God. That is the essence of idolatry. That is it. You indict yourself by even saying it. It is the essence of idolatry. We're to worship the one true living God. God is spirit, Jesus said. And those who worship Him, worship Him how? In spirit and in truth. And God has given us his word, and we come before him. The great commentator Matthew uh, Henry, in his commentary, states this. It's called exchanging the truth of God for a lie, for images are teachers of lies. And it insinuates to us that God has a body, whereas he is infinite spirit. Our religious worship must be governed by the power of faith and not by the power of imagination. Sometimes joking around, you hear me say this, joking around, just qualifying this right now, but sometimes, you know, I think God's from Brooklyn, and he speaks like he's from Brooklyn. You know, what are you doing? So many times I can hear the Lord say, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're messing up, oh boy. That's just a joke. just want to put that out there. But there's something more, this fundamental truth that extends not only to the images of God, but if we worship other things, if we have a love that is greater than our love for God, then we're guilty of breaking this one as well. If our home is our treasure, if our wealth is our treasure, if all anything else that there is there is our pleasure and our treasure, then we make idols of these And we become guilty of breaking the second commandment. Exodus 25 says, You shall not worship them, the Lord said to Moses, or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The third commandment. Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished, who takes his name in vain. Listen to me good. If you're going to snooze out on the service, then listen to this one point, please. I beg you. This is a commandment that many people who profess the name of Jesus Christ are guilty of. And I really want to I, I really bring a level of sobriety to this and, and, and realism. This is a damning offense in our society and our culture. There are many that are guilty of it, who hear this message, who are believers in Christ, and violate this commandment. In vain. What does that mean? It means to use the name of the Lord in emptiness, in nothingness, in vanity, in worthlessness, in terms of a motive. This is plain, outright disregard for the name of God. That's what it is. It's disregard for the name of God. And it substitutes itself or it gets used as using the name of God as a curse word to swear by the name of God. All these things are violations of the third commandment. But this commandment comes with a penalty. For God will certainly... Not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now listen to me. I'm begging you with all sincerity of heart. I am begging everyone who hears this. Do not say OMG like we are so accustomed to saying, Oh my God, don't do it. You're taking the name, the Lord's name in vain. Do not text it. Do not write it in any other manner or form other than praising God for who He is. Do not take the name of the Lord God in vain. In worthlessness, in emptiness, change your vocabulary, say something else, but do not, I beg you, randomly and wantonly just Throw out the name of the Lord God. Listen, so holy was the name of the Lord God. Listen to what Leviticus 19.12 says. And you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of the Lord your God. Frankie Valley had a song out years ago, Swear to God. Right? That's a prime example of it. That means you don't take holy the name of God. And if you use the name of Jesus, if you use the name of God as a curse word, even worse. Ezekiel 39 7 says this In my holy name I shall make my name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I shall let, not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. You know, one of my things that grieves me deeply, deeply, deeply is that the name of God is blasphemed in this society. I think about just recently, several months ago, when a court, when the Congress was holding session and they invited somebody to come and pray, and he prayed that God would move upon the the Congress and And that they would know the will of God. And this arrogant Jerry Nadler stands up and says, God has nothing to do with the meeting of this Congress. He's going to answer for that. Not to me either. Praise God for that. The name of the Lord is being blasphemed all throughout this nation. All throughout the world. And God will not. Leave him unpunished who takes the name of the Lord in vain. Lastly, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The first three commandments are all about how to worship God. But the fourth commandment was specific to the day that Israel worshipped God on the seventh day. And by doing so, Israel declared to the world around them that they worshipped the God of creation and not a God made by hand. This commandment is reflective of God's creative activity and a day to pause and worship God with all mind and soul. And it is important to note that the Sabbath was given to Israel, but the Sabbath was not given to the church. a matter of fact, it's nullified in Colossians 2.16. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, "...therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink." or in respect to festival or new moon or sabbath day things which were a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to Christ right so we go oh well we don't have to worship sabbath day that means that church is optional i could do whatever i want i want to go to beach lord knows i've been stressed out and i'm tired i think i'm going to the beach because i could go to church next sunday me share something there remains a sabbath rest for the christians and that sabbath rest is christ and there remains a sabbath principle to take a day to worship the lord and the church upon the resurrection of jesus christ took that day called it the lord's day and that day was sunday and sunday is the day of that sabbath principle where we come together to worship the Lord. Hebrews 4, 9-10 says, There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. The principle of the Sabbath rest was to worship God. Six days you shall work, but the seventh day you shall rest, and your energies and your attention was directed at the worship of God. That has not disappeared. We are still to take a day to worship God. And by the way, worshiping God doesn't mean you went to church. That's called going to church. But when you come together and you worship the Lord, when you take the day to stop and pause and give it to the Lord, and you're going to say, I'm going to cease from all all my other labor so that my heart and my soul is directed toward the Lord, to take in the Word of the Lord, to worship the Lord, to fellowship with other believers, to encourage them on in the faith. That's the principle of the Sabbath. If we order Sunday as the Lord's Day, and we truly seek to honor God, then coming to church, it's not going to be problematic. It's not going to be burdensome. Rather, we're going to come with hearts of worship to meet God. And I hope you came today with a heart of worship to meet God. So as we look at those first four commandments, the reason I pointed out that first four commandments shows that the heart has to be pure to fulfill them. What did Jesus say about the Ten Commandments? He said, hey, you break the least of these, you're guilty of breaking them all. And Jesus didn't focus himself on the overt action. Jesus focused on the intent of the heart. Which brings us back to Mark chapter 10 and this rich young ruler. If you go back to Mark chapter 10, I shared with you last week in verse 17, and as he was setting up out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, what thing shall I do? Here was the dilemma, and as I shared with you last week, I believe that this person was honorable. I believe that this person was moral. I believe this person was religious. I don't think he was dubious. I don't think he was duplicitous. I really believe in my heart he was excited to meet this prophet of God and find out once and for all what is the missing link. What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And notice in verse 19 that Jesus said to him, you know the commandments. Now, stop and pause here for a quick second. Which portion of the commandments does he give him? He gives him the back portion of the commandments. Man's responsibility to other man. But he didn't give him the front end of it. And always remember, you'll see through scripture that whenever Jesus encounters the proud, he gives them the law. When Jesus encounters the humble, he s- extends to them grace. Now let's not beat up this rich young ruler as I heard many pastors do. Oh, he was proud, he was wealthy. Listen, he's us. Let's put that, let's, let's, let's put our money where our mouth is. He's us. He's moral. He's comfortable. He's got a good sense of religion about him. Hey, that describes 90% of the church today. So let's not get all, all judgmental on this guy. But notice what the Lord says to him. The Lord says to him, You know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Jesus gives them the very things about man's interactions with man as reflected by God. But Jesus did not tell him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart and soul and mind. The back end of the Ten Commandments reflect the heart that is after God. Notice the response to the rich young ruler in verse 20. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And I shared with you last week, it was like he was telling him, Tell me something I don't know. Where's the revelation? Where's the word, Lord God? Where be healed, and you're going to do this? Where is it, Lord? I'm looking for something big. You're giving me the Ten Commandments. I could recite them forward. I could recite them backwards. How do you want them? Call them out. I'll tell you how they go, Lord. I've been doing all these things from the time I was a tot. Right there, by the way, is a reflection. A reflection of that self-confidence. I'm secure in my knowledge. There's a great, great sin that's occurring in the church of Jesus Christ today. Everybody's a theologian. There's a great sin in the church of Jesus Christ today where, where so many people know the Word of God, but very few people know the God of the Word. There's a great sin in the church of Jesus Christ today where many are resting upon their accomplishments and they're resting upon their wisdom and they're resting upon their book knowledge, but the knowledge of the Spirit of God, they have none. Which is why we see so many churches today that are weak, and so many Christians that are powerless. They would not know the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit hit them over the head with a baseball bat. And notice verse 21. I, I really want you to notice this. Underline this in your Bible. And looking at him. I shared with you last week that, that that word looking means to stare intently. It's an intense stare as if he's seen through a person. So get it. Here is a rich young ruler who has an encounter with the mighty living God. He is talking to God face to face face to face, he had no idea who he just said, I've been doing all these things since I was a young boy, and now the living God gazes into his soul, stares intently in him, and what generates in Christ? He felt a love. And that is the agape love of God. Jesus penetrated his soul with his eyes. And deep down inside the heart of Jesus, he felt the love for this young man. And so, Jesus said, you asked, I'm going to tell you. Jesus said, one thing you lack. Remember what the rich young ruler asked? What one thing must I do? He said, one thing you lack, young man. Go and sell all you possess. Give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Out of love. Jesus said, I'm not going to camouflage the truth. Out of love, Jesus said, I'm going to be specific. I'm going to be very clear. Out of love, Jesus with the with the compassion that can only come from Christ, looked at this young man and said, out of love, I'm going to tell you the truth. What is hindering you? I'm going to tell you, you need to be complete. Sell it all. Get rid of it. Follow me. That's where we ended last week. The cost to follow Jesus. There is a cost to follow Jesus. Sometimes it's friendship, sometimes it's family, sometimes it's ridicule. Sometimes it is your life, sometimes it's persecution, sometimes it's jail, sometimes it's being thrown into a labor camp, sometimes it's being ostracized from society. Where in the world, only in America, did we ever get this idea that there was no cost to follow Christ? No cross to follow Christ. But Christ makes this abundantly clear. There is a cost. Get rid of it all. Why? Because it's hindering you from the kingdom of God. Brother, sister, if the Lord spoke to you directly and said, I'm going to tell you the one thing that's keeping you out of the kingdom of God, it's your pride, it's your wealth. It's your materialism. It's your covetedness. Would you give it up for Christ? Would you give it up? Would you give it all up? It's a cost to follow Christ. But notice what happens to this rich young man. Oh, notice this. Because now we're going to see the consequence of rejecting Christ. Look what it says in verse 22. But at this time, These words, he went away grieved. His face fell, for he was one who owned much property. I want to call your attention to two key words in the text. But at these words, his face fell. Literally, what that means, his jaw dropped. He was aghast. He was shocked at the words of Christ. Sell it all? Sell everything I have? What do you think? I'm crazy? What are you, crazy? You think I'm just going to follow you? I've accumulated all this. I'm a religious leader in the synagogue. Do you not know who I am, Jesus? He was gassed. Shocked. You know, in that culture, it was a sign if you were wealthy, it was thought that that was a blessing of God. We're going back to that same kind of stuff today, right? All the false teachers going out there that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. So if you were wealthy, it was a sign that God has blessed you. Conversely, if you were sick or you were poor, it was was a sign that God had cursed you. Remember blind Bartimaeus? Who sinned that this man was born blind? So just think what the rich young ruler's thinking. I am blessed of God. I am blessed of God. Look at me. I'm young. I got dough. I'm a ruler in the church. I'm a ruler in the synagogue. Man, it don't get better than this. You know the ways of the kingdom of God are opposite the ways of the world. Don't ever forget that. The world invites you to live. Christ invites you to die. The world says be filled with everything you can fill yourself up with. Christ says, man, you want to be filled, you have to become empty. The world wants you to be a leader and have other men and women work for you and serve you. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus says you want to be servant and you got to serve in the kingdom of God if you want to be the greatest you have to become the least and here we see the same principle at work here go sell it get rid of it don't you don't need it just take up your cross take up your cross and follow me hey don't get down on this guy Because if the Lord said the same thing to most of us, we would react the same way as well. And just think, Jesus didn't do this out of righteousness. Jesus didn't do it because I demand that you do it. Jesus looked at the man and loved him and felt a deep compassion and said, I'm not going to hold back on this young man any longer. It also goes on to say that after his face fell, after he was shocked, after he was gasped, he went away. He left. There were no other words to say to Jesus. You notice that. Sell it all. And he went. And not only did he went, but he went away, the Word of God says, grieved, grieved. And that word talks about to experience a deep, emotional pain or trauma. Now remember the beginning, verse 17, he ran up to Jesus. He ran up to Jesus and not only did he run up to Jesus, but he ran up to Jesus and he knelt down at Him. He was convinced at some point this man was going to open up the kingdom of God to Him. And yet when Christ opened up the kingdom of God, the cost was too great to pray to pay. All the horror of rejecting Jesus Christ. What else is there if we reject Him? How can we? How can we be made right with God if we reject Christ? This young man was grieved in spirit because of his rejection of Christ, because of the high call to follow Christ. I stated to you several times, He had an encounter with the Savior. He had an encounter with the risen Lord. He had an encounter with the judge of all the earth. He had an encounter with the living God, God incarnate. And God laid out His truth. And God laid out His truth in love. And it was too much for Him to swallow. And so He said, I reject it. And in rejecting it, He walked away grieved. And I tell you as much today, reject Christ, you too will walk away grieved. Reject Christ, you too will find... Oh, that preacher doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh, those people in the church are so hypocritical. Oh, the gospel is baloney. I can't trust the gospel. I can't... You'll find every single excuse in the world. But you will walk away grieved. Which is why we beg everyone to come to Christ... To throw yourself on the mercy of God. You're not saved through your moral goodness. You're not saved because you go to church for a hundred years. You're not saved by what you do. You're only saved by what God does in you. So, church, I declare, there is a high call to follow Christ. That we are to love Christ with all of our heart and soul and mind. And by the way, you know why the young man couldn't do that? Because of the first commandment. He did not love the Lord thy God with all of his heart and soul and his mind. And that we as the children are to serve him and worship him only. Listen, when you're a Christian, there's no inconvenience too great for God. There's no sacrifice too great for Christ. There's no affection greater than Him. The Christian life, let me put it on the table for you right now, the Christian life is a life of sacrifice and inconvenience and suffering. After Christ. Many want to love Christ, so they create a Christ of their making and they worship Him. Good Lord, if I had a dime for every time somebody would tell me, Oh, I went to such and such church. Oh, I love the music. What happened to the rest of the church service? What about the word of God? They create their own Christ. And they say, My Christ would never do that. My Christ would never say that. And here's a bulletin. They're right. They're absolutely right. Because their Christ doesn't exist. There's only one as revealed in Scripture. My favorite thing is when I hear people say, well, I love Christ, but I'm not going to be crazy with it. I probably push people away from Christ if I'm too much with them. How do you push people away that are already pushed away? When they're outside of Christ, they're lost. They're in the hands of the enemy. How do you push them further away? That's a lie of the devil. It's a lie of the devil. Listen, this young man on the surface was religious, moral, steeped in Jewish tradition, knowledgeable in the law of Moses, yet he missed the mark with God. Are you hearing this? He was moral, he was religious, he was steeped in tradition, but yet he missed the mark with God. And I think how many in the church of Jesus Christ are knowledgeable in the Word of God, steeped in the tradition of the church, but they lack a genuine affection for Christ. How many love the things of the world more than they love Christ? Whether it is job, career, home, family, material things, status, entertainment, the list can go on. Christ would say that does not constitute love for God. Listen, the call to follow Christ is much higher. And simply, the call to be a Christian is a high call. Listen to our Lord Jesus in Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father, mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves sons or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Listen to Jesus in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life he cannot be my disciple. Let me qualify that. Hate doesn't mean hatred in the form of it, it means love more than. Now, is there any ambivalence in those two statements of Christ? I think they're pretty direct. What is he saying? We must love Christ. We must love God. How do we love Christ? How do we love God? Through Jesus Christ, his son. By coming and being saved, by repenting of our sins, and turning to Christ as our only atonement for sin, then we can come in, then we can enter in to fellowship with God cost to follow Christ is a high cost and not some empty profession. It requires a new birth, a birth from above. It cannot be done in our own ability. Notice the response of Jesus here. Verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered them again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now let's get something clear. Jesus didn't say it's impossible, Jesus said it's difficult. And what was the status of this young man? He was wealthy, he was educated, he was a leader. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Now these disciples' mouths drop. What? What, Lord? The wealthy cannot be saved? This is what they're thinking. Verse 25, Jesus makes the statement, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 26, and they were even more astonished. Now they're really shocked. Lord, what are you telling me? How do I get a camel through an eye of a needle? That's an impossibility, Lord. Just think of the reorientation the disciples are going through. Lord, I thought they were blessed. Lord, I thought you gave riches as a sign of blessing. Lord, I thought that this was the way. Now you're telling me it's not true? It's not true? Let me tell you something. Wealth deceives. Pleasures deceive. Comforts deceive. They make us have this less, less of a sense of a longing and a need for God. This young man was comfortable in his role. He was comfortable in his wealth. He was comfortable in his wisdom. He was comfortable in his culture. And it deceived him into believing that everything was all right with God. This rich young man represents the average American. I got it. I got it. And so many times when we're so comfortable we don't have a tendency to think for the Lord. You know what the proof of that is? Have a crisis come in your life. Pastor, I have cancer. Pastor, I have COVID. Pastor, I lost my job. My daughter ran away. My son moved away. Have a crisis, and all of a sudden, what happens? We're down on our knees. Oh, mighty God, hear my prayer, hear my prayer. Now listen, I'm not making light of that. Please, don't think that I am. I'm not. Because from the best of us to the least of us, we all do that. But what I am saying is, when crisis and suffering and trial enter our lives, we remember God. The point is, we need to be always remembering God. Walking in fellowship with God, in concert with God, in lockstep with God. When we think we don't need Him, that is the time we need Him the most. When we don't feel like praying, that's the time we need to pray the most. When we don't feel like going into the Word of God, that's the time we got to jump into the Word of God the most. When we don't feel like going to church, that's the time we need to be among God's people the most. Don't let the devil mislead you or persuade you elsewise. Don't let him tell him that everything in your life is okay and fine and you're strutting and you're doing good. That is the path of destruction of so, so many When they get to the point where they say, I'm good, I don't need God, I'm doing great, the Lord is blessing me. There's this tendency in our culture that when things go good, we say, oh, the Lord bless you, I got this new job. Oh, God really blessed you with that new job, I got that car. Oh, the Lord really blessed you with that car. But you know many times the Lord blesses you? In suffering. In trial, in the circumstance where you're being proved. When you don't know how to pray as you should in illness at times when you're saying Lord take this from me Lord take this from me and the Lord is coming back and say my grace is sufficient for you my grace is sufficient for you I will not let you go you will not be tempted beyond what you can endure I will indeed provide the exit but it ain't here yet And the Lord says hold on Hold on to the altar. Keep believing. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. And the Lord is pouring out abundant grace and mercy into your life. The kingdom is opposite the world. And sometimes we think when we have it all, we've arrived. But in a moment, in a moment, the Lord could shatter the stability made through man. And bring us to our knees and say, God, forgive me. Help me, God, please. Please. Verse 27. Praise God for verse 27. Praise God. Looking upon them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus is about to teach. A very important lesson to them. It's not, what, it's not man that will do something for God. What one thing do I lack, Lord? What one thing am I missing? What one thing must I do? God is not looking for man to do for him anything. Instead, it is God who will do for man. And will open up the gates of heaven. Through his son, Jesus Christ. Through the atoning death and the atoning blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, God makes possible even for wealthy, arrogant, self-secured people to come into a fullness and a relationship with the living God. And I am so thankful for verse 27 because he did it for me. I'm so thankful for verse 27 because he did it for some of you. Some of you who may have been on the top of your game and Christ burst into your life and pulled you out of the muck and mire and saved you. Some of you were at the end of your rope, but Christ broke in and boom, pulled you up out of the muck and mire and saved you and gave you a new life in Christ. And you're eternally grateful. And you're eternally blessed. And the Lord is pouring out even in your trial and even in your suffering. Abundant blessing, abundant blessing, abundant blessing. Maybe you don't even realize This man had it all, youth, wealth, position, intelligence. He was confident and secure, moral and upright, a leader in the synagogue. Most would say that God had surely blessed him, but despite all of his external attributes and worldly successes, he lacked a pure and a total love for God. And he loved his wealth. And he loved his security. And he loved it more than he loved God. Church, where are your idols? Where are the areas of your heart? That you put something other than Christ up on that. Listen we can't even get so comfortable, we can have idols that look spiritual to the rest of the world. And we, could, we could take our external religion and just make it look so good for everybody to see. as we close this message. And I wish I had time to finish out the rest of it. I want us to look at the rich young man in a different light. He's very representative of most of the people that you and I come in contact with every day. He's representative of a lot of our friends, our co-workers, our family, our relationship, pretty secure okay but what it all boils down to where are you with Christ that's what it boils down to do you love him is Christ calling you to let go and to follow Him? Do you have a hunger and a thirst in your heart for Jesus Christ? Do you pant after Christ? Do you yearn for Christ? Do you love Christ? Is He your joy? Is He your greatest affection? Maybe that love has dwindled somewhat. Maybe you think back to a time when I did all these great things for Christ, but I haven't done anything recently in years for Christ. Let me tell you something. If you repent of that sin today, Christ will rush into your life. And He will fill you with the Holy Spirit. And He will equip you So that your life changes. I tell everybody what God did in my life is he intercepted my life. I'm a big sports guy. I love sports analogies. Anybody knows football, right? You're marching this way. The quarterback throws a pass. The defense picks it off and he heads that way. That's repentance. I got the ball and now my goal is over there, not over there. And if you're in Christ, he did that for you too. But, church, I said in our corporate prayer, prayer that now's the time. There's no time for easy believism anymore. There's no time for traditional church playing. You're either in, you're out. And I'm praying that God is going to raise up a bunch of people that are in. They say, Lord, I'm in. I'm in because I love Jesus, not because I want to play church, not because I like the people in the church or anything else. I'm in because I love Jesus. I do this because I love Jesus. I will do that because I love Jesus. Lest we be like that rich young ruler to whom everything was crowded out. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as we come before you, Lord God, on this day, may your Spirit speak to our hearts, Lord. There is no more time to waste, Lord. The time to be indifferent for Christ is over. Who will stand on the Lord's side, Lord God? Choose ye this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we shall serve the Lord. <coughs> Lord, we come before you. Let not one here not choose Christ. And if there be any here whose hearts are being stirred right at this moment, Father, to whom you are drawing them, Father, may they turn from their sins and trust themselves completely to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and cry out to you, have mercy. And Father, you will indeed Have mercy. Let this be a day of great salvation, Lord. Let this be a day of great repentance, Lord. Let this be a day that the Spirit of God is glorified through transformed lives. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.